Amen. Well, thank you, Kevin. Um, really appreciate that, and thank you, Greg, for leading as well. Uh, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Good to see you guys here. You glad to be here? All right, I've never asked that question before. In the history of my time here, I've been here at the church for 19 years, which is a long time. I'm only 22, but I started young. But anyway, good to see you guys. And I, before I move on, I don't want to miss, listen, we had a rookie on stage here today, and I know he doesn't want me to call him out, but man, Evan, really appreciate you and the way you're playing today. Um, you can hate on me later for that, Evan, but I just want to say thank you, man. Like, I really appreciate you being willing. These people volunteer their time. They put in time to prep for this and come, and so it's really cool uh, what you do. And thank you, man, for, for serving us that way this morning. All right. Well, hey, um, about, uh, about 25 years ago, I was the director of the Factory Ministries, believe it or not. Many of you know the Factory. It's a social service nonprofit, faith-based social service nonprofit. I stumbled all over that one. Sorry. Anyway, um, it started just as a youth center. This church and another couple of churches did a survey in the community, figured out what the community needs were, and I became the second director from a guy that some of you know named Sam Gordley. When I was the second director there, only a part-time role. All we were was a youth center. We didn't do everything else that they do now, which I love what they do. Um, but that's all we did then. Um, and I met there, I met a volunteer um, staff member at that um, at the factory. She was a young adult, and she went to Paradise Mennonite Church. Some of you know where Paradise Mennonite Church is. Right, so you're sitting in the building, right? Um, so. Uh, Back in the day, this is where I met Jen, who's now my wife. And so Jen was a volunteer staff member at the factory. I was a director. And I remember um, as we began our dating relationship, some of you may be able to relate to this if you're as old and creaky now as I am, um, that when we first began dating, like I would spend an inordinate amount of time just wanting to be around Jen. If, you've, if you're married or you've dated people for a little while, you, like, you know what that feels like. And I remember in our home, we had something screwed to the wall. You, some of you may know what I'm talking about. It was screwed to the wall, and you would take it off the wall, and then there were numbers on that thing that you look at. And if you push the right numbers on that thing and then waited a little bit and put it up to your ear, then you could actually hear somebody on the other side of the world or other side of the county or whatever. But it was screwed to the wall, and the only way to, to get on the phone with somebody is to, 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 to you know, take it on the wall. And then to make it more mobile, what you would do is get an 800-foot cord for your phone, right? And then it goes through the kitchen, through the living room, dining room, around the hallway, an indie room, and then you can close the door because it fits under the crack on the door, right? You can close the door and have this snaking all the way through the house just so you can talk to the person you want to talk to. You guys, some of you remember that? Yeah? And then some of you remember this. When you're on the phone, every now and then you'd hear if you were, if you had money, you could add to your phone service call waiting. It was like $2 more a month, I think. You would hear every now and then, you're on the phone, like I'm on the phone with Jen, I'd hear a beep, 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 and it's someone else calling. And I'm like, there's nobody more important than this right now, so no way I'm going to get that call. You know what I'm saying? I don't care if it's the lawyer calling for my parents or the president calling for my parents. It doesn't matter. I'm talking to Jen right now. Okay, that's, that's the way it was. And that, that was the deal. And I would talk for hours with her. Well, we didn't always talk on the phone because you didn't love the phone that much. So we'd talk. And then, but when I go to her house, we'd hang out for hours. And you, you know those like aimless goodbyes? Like it's around midnight. You should have gone home an hour ago, and you haven't gone home yet. And you're like, well, we should go. Yeah. And then no one wants to make the move to be the first one to go. And then it takes forever to go. Then you're finally leaving at like 2 in the morning. And then I have class the next morning at 7.30 at LBC, like prison epistles at 7.30 in the morning. I've gotten like four and a half hours of sleep, and I'm so tired. But I get through the day. You know how I get through the day? Yeah, by thinking about what I'm going to do that night, which is talking to Jen again. 
because I'm so tired, but the truth is, and you've experienced this, the things that you long for, the things that, that deep down you just can't wait to do, you're willing to do a whole lot of stuff to do that. You know what I'm saying? I, I tried to put that into words, and I didn't really, in my opinion, do a tremendous job of that yet, but I'm going to try. So here's, here's what I think. I'm trying to capture all of that in three words, and it's these three words here. I think that longings drive endurance. When you long for something, you are willing to do a whole lot of stuff to get to it. You can endure all kinds of fatigue, exhaustion, sleeplessness, because you're longing to be with somebody else or to accomplish a goal is bigger than the fatigue and drawdown that you feel. Some of you have done this with like couch to 5K programs. You don't want to do it, but you kind of do, and so you're willing to endure all kinds of things. Some of you have done this in your business. You have a longing, and you're willing to push through to get there. Longings drive endurance. You're willing to endure what you really long for, and you've experienced this in your life in different ways. But this is not the only thing about endurance that I want to say this morning. You've maybe heard it said that we are, as a people, we are what we consistently do, okay? It doesn't matter what you say you believe, you are, and I am, what I consistently do. And over a lifetime, what I do over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, that is who I am. Forget my value statement, forget my even doctrinal statement, forget my values that I can write down on a piece of paper. You can judge my life on what I consistently do, and I can judge yours on what we consistently do over and over and over again. And over the long haul, endurance does something else for us. See, my hope in my relationship with Jen, we're now married 24 years. Well, there'll be 24 next month. I'm hoping we can get there at least, so that will be a true statement. I am hopeful that this relationship that began 25 years ago, that, that I'm hopeful that till death do us part will be the case for us. Right? And I know that's not the story for everybody, and I'm not trying to judge that. Hear me on that. I'm not trying to judge that here. I'm just saying for my story right here, that my hope is that I can pass down to my kids this, this legacy that says, we're willing to endure this stuff. All right? We're willing to endure all this stuff that's going to come, and we're going to try our, our very best to figure that out. Again, no, it's not everybody's story. That's where we are. And I would, I would love to be able to do that. So here's what I'm saying about endurance. Longings drive endurance, and endurance drives legacies. What you are willing to do over and over and over and over again, that is what drives legacies. And I am convinced that people need not just legacies around business values and financial values and just personal mentorship, but I am convinced that people need spiritual legacies to pass on to the next generation. People like you and maybe like me who are willing to say, I long, I long to know God and make him known in such a way that I'm willing to endure all kinds of stuff along the way of my life so that over and over and over and over and over again, my endurance, my willingness to stay on track will leave a legacy for the next generation to see that there is a faithful God who cares for restoration, wholeness, hope, what the Bible calls shalom, or the fullness and restoration and hope of humanity. And so this is where I'm going this morning. The reason I'm going here is because a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, a guy named Paul, an apostle, a follower of Jesus, wrote on his deathbed, basically, a letter to Timothy. 
And in that, and we're in the last section, you have, by the way, endured this series, and we're at the end of Endure this morning, and we're at the last part that I'm going to cover in this letter. There's a few more verses that I'm not going to cover for us publicly, but we're going to finish it here. So I want to invite you to, to go back in time to see this principle in play, I think, hundreds of years ago that I think is very applicable even today. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 uh, through 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair near you. That's our gift to you. 2 Timothy is in the right two-thirds of your Bible. You'll find that right after, believe it or not, 1 Timothy. Thank you for the couple of people who smirked at that bad dad joke. All right, here we go. So 2 Timothy chapter 4 in the NIV translation is what I'm reading from. And here, here we begin. Paul is writing... He says this, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now, pause it there. I'm going to uh, interrupt. This is going to be stop and go traffic on the biblical text this morning, all right? So, so just get framed up on this one. This is a really big statement. I, I read it quickly, but look at it this way. Um, you remember around 9-11, uh, every year at 9-11, you'll see uh, on social media, you'll see banners, you'll see never forget, right? And rightly so, never forget. In other words, it's almost like saying, in the presence of those who have died as a result of what happened in 9-11, don't forget these values. And it's rightly so, a moment to pause and remember and reflect on what has been lost in our country, and truthfully, in the world. It's almost like saying, in the presence of those who have passed, take a moment to not be too aloof, to connect, to think about what happened, and live your life accordingly. Well, Paul's kind of doing the same thing to Timothy. He's kind of saying, listen, in the presence of God, it's as if I'm bringing God the Father down into this conversation with you, Timothy. Oh, by the way, not just God, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. One more thing, Timothy. He goes on. He says, who will judge, in case you're doing this, who will judge the living and the dead? In case you're not sure how important this is, Timothy, I want you to know I'm bringing God the Father in who created everything. I'm bringing Christ in who's going to save us. He's the one who judges the living and the dead, in case you forgot about that. And then also in view of his appearing and all of what will come, his kingdom that is to come, I'm going to give you this charge. I mean, can he bring any more weight to this charge? He's not just saying, Timothy, I want you to do something because I think, like, he's not, he could write this, Timothy, I have an idea for you. Hey, here's a priority for your life. Here's something you should consider. He doesn't. He's like, in the presence of God and what God has done, what Christ has done, and what he will do in the future, his ability to judge and bring his kingdom to bear on this world, I'm giving you this charge. So this is a big deal. And truthfully, if we're honest, okay, so Paul knows he's going to die very soon. So he doesn't waste words. He's pretty clear. I want you to do this, Timothy. And what does he tell him to do? I give you this charge. The next three words, at least in my text, are the charge themselves. And verse 2 puts it this way. Preach the word. That's it. Preach the word. I don't, again, I don't know how much more important or how much more weight he could bring to this to Timothy. This is the big deal, Timothy. I want you to do this. So preach the word is his deal. Preach the word. I want you to do that. And here's what that means. And we need to Understand, this has a historical um, meaning. In other words, forget, forget our application for a minute. Go back in time with me. Paul, 
is literally going to die. He's going to be sentenced to death, and he's writing to Timothy, I want you to, to preach the word. He's not thinking, I don't believe, about us in America in 2022. I think we can make that case pretty easily. He's just writing to Timothy. He's like, I want you to do this. So this word, actually preach the word, is actually what it means is to, to gather an audience around you. So this is the context is a public gathering. You're gathering an audience and you're proclaiming to them by you're trying to persuade and convince them, in this case, about the truth of Christ. But that's the preaching idea. You're gathering an audience, you're bringing them together. Why is this so important for Paul? And why might he, maybe even a better question, why might he need to convince Timothy with so much weight to do this? Just remember this. Do you know what Paul did? to get himself in trouble the way he did? Preach the word. And so Paul's basically saying to Timothy, listen, my friend, um, I've been sentenced to death, and what I want you to do is the same thing I just did to get sentenced to death. So if you don't mind. Which is why he brings the weight that he does. In the presence of God, like, you're not, this isn't about my life, man. This is about the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God. And in light of that, never forget that your life is just a part of the bigger picture of what God is doing. And he's saying, preach the word of the audience that you have around you. He's saying, preach the word, convince, speak to, engage them. And then he spends the next eight verses, or six verses that remain through verse eight, to explain several things to Timothy about how to do this, why to do this. The first thing he does is explain when he should do this. And look what he says about that. He says, preach the word. When should you preach the word? The last, next phrase in verse 2 says, be prepared in season and out of season. And that's the way life is, isn't it? For you. I mean, for me it is. As a parent, you ever have just an in season as a parent? Can you ever as a parent be like, listen kids, this is an out of season moment for mom right now, so I need you to not ask me anything. I'm not ready for this conversation. Can you ever, as a CEO or a, a leader or a manager in an organization, when someone comes to you, when you're in the middle of doing something else and you've got to make a crisis leadership decision, can you just be like, no, listen, I have to prepare for this right now. I can't lead. No, you have to be ready all the time, all the time, in season and out of season. That's what Paul says to Timothy. When do you need to be prepared to preach your word, Timothy? Man, this is your life, in season and out of season. When you're prepared and when you're not do this. Preach the word. All right? Well, how should it be done? This is so important. I love how he says this. The next part of verse 2, he says, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Please don't miss that. Now, for some of you here this morning, what I'm going to say next may be the only thing that maybe you even need to hear this morning. Maybe this will be helpful to you. Maybe it won't be. But as I look at this section, when he says, correct, rebuke, and encourage, and then he adds the phrase, with great patience and careful instruction, Paul is combining such a powerful idea. Preach the truth, right? That's what we often think of, preach the truth. But mixing truth and grace is so essential, because for many of us, and here's what I want to say, if you've experienced truth of preaching without grace, it has is, is felt like judgment to you. Truth without grace feels like judgment. It always does. And if you get truth, but you get no great patience, and leaning in and listening and careful, careful instruction, you get a hard sledgehammer nailing you with truth, and you feel 
judged. You don't feel warmly welcome to connect and relate to God. And so truth without grace feels like, even if it isn't intended to, feels like judgment. Which is why I think Paul puts it this way. How do you do this? You've got to marry truth, yes, with grace, so that truth and grace can lead to a drawing, to a repentance, to a turning, to a warming of my heart to the things of God. Well, why should it be done? And this is pretty, pretty amazing. If I close my eyes and transport myself back in time to when Paul wrote this, I can, I can honestly really relate to this, this next several verses, and maybe you can too, because I feel like in so many ways it describes where we are right now. Here's what he says, verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 5 now. He says, for the time will come. This is why you got to do this, Timothy, because the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, I don't know if you know of a world in which people are becoming more and more polarized. I don't know if you know of a world in which people are wanting to listen only to the people who affirm their current beliefs about how the world should work. I don't know if you know of a world where you can select which news outlets you want to get information from and which ones you can avoid. I don't know if you know of a world in which you can choose to a la carte pick your people, pick your church, pick your location, pick your worldview, and find people who support only that to gather around you and gather around me, people who tell me everything that my itching ears want to hear. I don't know if you can imagine that world in your wildest dreams, but it's almost as if Paul knows the nature of humanity and the struggles we have had with this forever. And he puts it that way. He says there's going to be a time when people are going to gather, only people around them, who are never really going to challenge them but affirm what they believe about doctrine, about God, how he works, about this world, and how he engages with it. You know, I had the privilege this week of being at the Lancaster 2040 Summit in downtown Lancaster, um, a variety of governmental, um, social service uh, leaders talking about matters that will impact this county through 2040. As exciting as zoning conversations are, they are necessary. As exciting as things are in that nature, but we're talking about homelessness situations, food shortages, et cetera, et cetera. There's a professor at FNM who's a political science professor there, and he gave a presentation in which he basically um, affirmed what we feel about our political landscape. I'm not going to get political. I'm just referring to what he said here. And he said that, in, and to put it this way, um, the political data science will say this, that we have never been more polarized in the past 100 years of our American history than we are right now. Now, there's political science data that backs that up, not just a personal feeling and opinion. But the data will tell us that Republicans vote Republican at a higher rate, and Democrats will vote Democrat at a higher rate. The bipartisan interest is gone, by and large, and we have never. So in your lifetime, if you have ever said this, I've, it's never been this bad before. You're verbalizing what the data points out, that we have never been more polarized. At the same time, there's also data that tells us the way people feel about the other party 
has never been worse in the last 50 years than it is right now. So if you're on the right, most people now think the, the left is terrible. If you're on the left, most people now think the right is terrible. That has changed in the last decade, 20, 30, 40 years. It has gotten, data tells us, progressively worse, historically never worse. I say that not to condemn anything, but to point out this reality that the truth is we are living in a world in which people will gather around themselves, not just political ideologies, but personal ideologies. And it's difficult to tell the difference between the two sometimes, if I'm honest. And this is the world in which Paul is writing to Timothy, and it's the world in which you and I live right now. And he's saying, in this, I want you to be careful, Timothy. I want you to be careful. People are going to turn their ears away from the truth, the truth of God, and turn aside to myths. That language means kind of to wander off into myths, kind of like, hey, you know, you ever lose a kid on a field trip? You're going through the zoo, and the kid in the back trails off. You're like, hey, where'd Johnny go? I'm like, I don't know. He went to the giraffes. Like, that's the idea. Like, there are people who wander off. They turn aside to myths. He says, discharge the duties of your ministry. And you should just know this. That's a, the idea of that is a, a volunteer ministry, <laughs> believe it or not. Paul is saying that you're, you're Timothy, man, you volunteered for this. And I, I want you to preach the word. I want you to be ready to die. I mean, you, you just... No one's paying you for this. You volunteered. You, by the way, and I volunteer for the things that we do as well. All right. With that being said, the last thing is this, and that is the what. All right. When do I do this? How, why, and what? And there's a couple of what's on this one, beginning at verse 6. What the end product will look like in this life. And this is where it's tied into legacy. And so listen to Paul, because he's writing for himself. He's kind of reflecting on where he's been. And he puts it this way. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Here's what he's saying about this, that at the end of your life, I think he's giving, I think he's giving Timothy a picture. And I don't know what you want to say about yourself at the end of your life, but I want to be able to say something like this at the end of mine. And I, 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 how's that sound to you? Like, I, yeah, coming to the end of the life, man, I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. How's that sound to you? Sound all right? Yeah, I fought the fight. How about you? You fought the fight. You finished the race. You kept the faith. How's that sound to you? Sound all right? Yep, two head nods, good. Because this is what I think Paul's reflecting on, because he knows the high calling that he's calling Timothy to. He's like, you might die in this process, Timothy, but I want you to know that what you're willing to endure over and over and over and over and over again over a lifetime, your endurance is going to lead to legacy. And I want you to be able to not just have a legacy so that people will make a memorial out of you and that people will, you know, get your name great. That's not why I talk about legacy. Legacies, legacies influence people to follow. In the times of hardest decisions, legacies can be things that God uses to remind people to make healthy and beneficial decisions to move forward in ways that serve and help and save other people. And so legacies aren't about, man, so that I can get my name in light somewhere or get a Hollywood star or get my name on a building somewhere. That's not why I'm talking about legacy. Legacy matters because it's the people whose stories we tell over and over again. And Paul's at the end, he's like, man, I'm, I'm, I've come to the end. I'm, I'm being poured out. I'm going to get this, and here's this term, crown of righteousness. Some people would argue that what we're talking about are physical crowns that God gives out to people in heaven. You know, you get a crown of righteousness, you get a crown of life, you get a crown of something else. I think what Paul has in mind, because this term actually means, it's almost like getting a gold medal. It's used in the Greek terminology 
for people who win a victory, they get a crown. And it's, it's um, ivy, flowers, kind of wreath that's put around your head. That's considered the crown, the crown of righteousness. And so what Paul's saying is you're going to get, like, God's going to reward you for the work you do, my friend. Like, don't forget the reward is going to be in heaven. And then he goes on. And this last part is what I want to tie into. He says, and not only to me, the end of this verse, the end of verse 8 here, and not only to me, like I'm not the only one who will get this, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And this is why I use the word longing at the very beginning, because Paul uses it here. He's saying that anybody who longs for the appearing of God is going to be in the same situation that he is. And longings, I would argue, longings drive endurance, and endurance drives legacy. Now, longings are so important. I remember when I was a, a younger kid, um, you know, at, at, for birthdays, I would enjoy getting gifts for birthdays, right? Of course you, you do. Kids do. I would get remote-controlled truck. That was my favorite gift in Barbados that I got. Yellow, four-by-four remote-controlled truck. I thought that was pretty cool. And when I was, you know, six, eight years old, those things were awesome. That's what I loved getting. And maybe you did too, you know, getting gifts. As I began to get gradually older, what I began to realize, and now to this stage in my life, is that the gifts are actually an extension of the longing that I really want. You see, the, the little 4x4 yellow remote control truck, it was an extension from my parents of their love to me. And so what do I actually long for on my birthday? Gifts? No. I long for love. As a six-year-old, I couldn't verbalize that, but I wanted a truck. You gave me a truck that was remote-controlled, and I felt loved. The longing was met by the extension of your gift to me. As I'm older now, and people, my, I know everyone wants to give me gifts for my birthday all the time. Thank you all for giving me a gift for my birthday this year. When Jen asked me, what do you want for your birthday this year? And many of you are in the same situation. You know what I want? I just want time with the people I love. Because the longing of my heart drives my behavior. And this is what Paul is saying, that underneath the surface level stuff that we deal with, with our cars and our homes and our clothes and our accomplishments and our reputation, underneath that there's a longing of your heart. He's saying all of us who long for the appearing of God, if that, if that is central, that longing will drive us to be willing to endure all kinds of stuff. And when you endure all kinds of stuff for a lifetime, that endurance leaves a legacy that people can track onto and hold onto. And so I have a couple questions to wrap it up this morning. First question is this. What's my preach the word? What's my preach the word? What's your preach the word? All right. Paul was very specific to Timothy. He's like, I want you to go out there. I want you to gather an audience. I want you to speak verbally to them publicly. If you, I don't know if you love public speaking. Right. Most people in the early church were not preaching the word the way Timothy was. They weren't. Because it was a very specific call that he wrote to Timothy. But they were. In the sense of their life. Being an influence. Because everybody has a crowd around them. And sometimes it's your children, sometimes it's your grandchildren, sometimes it's your coworkers, sometimes it's your classmates. But everybody has the ability to preach the word in the broadest of sense, of communicating, of influencing, of leading. 
people to know who God is in this world. Which leads to this second question related to this, what's my preach the word? And that is, where does my preach the word happen? I want to encourage you to at least ask one of these three questions today. I want you to kind of get a picture of a face of somebody in your mind here. Where does my preach the word happen? It might be with your children. It might be with your grandchildren. It might be at work with kids that you work with. It may be with your coworkers. It may be with your boss. Maybe with your teammates or your classmates. Where does my preach the word happen? Where I have an audience, I've been given even just a little bit of influence, and I have opportunities to over and over and over again with little deposits of faithful truth help people from wandering off to go visit the giraffes into myths. But through my life, and yes, through my words, help people along the path to know Christ and preaching the word. The last question is this. What do I consistently long for? Now, I don't know about you, but I regularly need adjustment here. What do I consistently long for? Because as much as I want to tell you that there are times that at my birthday, all that I want is love from people around me, it doesn't matter what you get me. At the same time, I'll say there are times, maybe this is true for you, where I get distracted by a bright, shiny, new thing. And I forget the longing that's underneath that. Whether it's a new bike, a new phone, new clothes don't interest me at all. You may tell I wear about four shirts, cycle them through every couple weeks. But all of us have these shiny things on the surface that we'll go for, that motivate us. And I can think that's my longing. But I need this adjustment, and I don't, I don't know about you. But here's what I mean. I want to encourage you. Because Paul says, all, all who long for his appearance, I get distracted. I get my eyes taken off the prize. And I want to encourage you very specifically. If you do not do this with some regularity, please, I'm just, I want to encourage you to consider this. Tell yourself, preach to yourself the gospel with regularity. Remind yourself don't sledgehammer yourself. Remind yourself. Here's the story. God, the Father, made you. Sin has separated us from him. In his love, God sent Christ to redeem me and you. Through nothing of my own merit, God has drawn me into a relationship with him through grace alone. And now I walk into my week with the people who annoy me and get in my way and vote differently and think differently. And I can either polarize or I can influence and preach the word that has been preached to me that maybe can be preached through you to your children, to your grandchildren, to your classmates so that the longing stays true that the longing can be for the appearance of God to bring peace, salvation, wholeness, and restoration to humanity. So let me encourage you to not forget that longings drive endurance, and endurance drives legacy. Let me encourage you, through the writings of Paul, to endure, to endure, to endure, to keep your eyes on the prize, and keep your longings of your heart warm to the things of God by reminding yourself of what Christ has done for you.
Thanks for tracking with us in this Endure series. I have appreciated you and your engagement with it. I hope it's been helpful to you. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning to get back in time to this ancient text, to get back in history to a time when Paul wrote these things and challenged Timothy to be willing to die for what was going to kill Paul. Man, a huge call to courage and bravery. A huge call to something meaningful in his life. And so I pray for us as we sit here now, so many years removed from when Paul was in prison and writing about this. It feels like another, another world. And yet it's so much the same. People are wandering all kinds of places, trying to find hope and meaning and fulfillment. And I, I pray for us as we influence, as we, if you will, preach the word in our lives with the people around us, I pray that you would give us courage to lead, to speak, to preach to ourselves the gospel so that we are not just truth bearers, but grace bearers, so that the truth that we have doesn't feel like judgment, but does with patience and instruction. Warmly invite people to consider the hope, life, and love of Christ. So, Father, I thank you for this ancient text and the power in it. I pray that you would help us to endure, that our longings will drive endurance, and that endurance will drive spiritual legacies so that people have a story to tell and remember about who God is through our lives. Father, we thank you for the time we could share together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.